Good morning. Welcome to the library. Sorry for the delay. We are ready to, to dive in. Um, it's great to see all of you. Thank you to uh, the faculty members who brought classes. So today's event is a little history, a little perspective. This is part of our One Book, One College event um, on Isaac Asimov's um, novel, iRobot. And over this year, we've been looking at a range of topics, artificial intelligence, changes coming to technology, how we interrelate to technology, and thinking about you know, what does technology do to us and make our lives easier, more difficult, those kind of things. And we thought we wouldn't be doing it right if we didn't get the broad historical perspective. So we've invited three of our most esteemed history faculty members uh, to be here to share their thoughts on how we've thought about technology over time, how technology's changed work, how technology's changed kind of how we, who we are, what, what we see in ourselves. So with that, I'll do quick intros. I wanna welcome um, Jim McIntyre, Mary Fafleese, and Josh Fulton. They always do a fantastic job, so thank you for your time in doing this. Thank you all for being here. I will turn it over to them. Thanks. Thank you. Okay. Can everyone hear me? Okay, I think we're good, thank you. Okay, so I thought it would start us off here. Um, I could not resist this because I'm, I'm sure all of you know what technophobia is, but of course I, you know, my, my big fat Greek wedding was coming into my, into my mind and I couldn't resist giving you the breakdown. As the father would say, you know, like the technophobia, that comes from techni, which means skill or artistry, and of course phobia comes from fovo, which is mean fear. That's what the dad would say in my big fat Greek wedding. So obviously it's not that hard to figure out, um, but what I thought you might find more interesting is just some statistics. Um, well, actually, this is a, a quote first, just to, and, and I'll, I'll give you a chance to read it, um, and for the, for the purposes of the recording, um, it's basically one of the most basic technology fears is rooted in the loss of control. We don't understand how a new piece of technology works, so our imaginations fill in the details. So, I found an article in The Atlantic from 2015, it says that Americans are more afraid of robots than they are of death which is kind of an interesting <laughs> statistic. So they, um, they took a, a random sample of about 1,500 people, so it's a pretty decent, decent amount of people. They subdivided all the categories um, into things from crime, the environment, daily life, um, like being you know, romantic rejection, technology, personal anxieties like clowns. You know, clowns I find very petrifying, I must say. Um, and they asked people kind of like to rank them in order. And what they basically, after they averaged all of the numbers together, what they essentially came out, found out was that technology was in second place. Natural disasters was actually in first place, which kind of surprised me, and secondly was technology. Death was like way down. I guess maybe you're thinking the natural disaster will probably take you out, so I guess death is somewhere in there anyway. Um, but I thought, you, I, didn't, I thought you might find this statistic interesting because I didn't think it would be that people would be this afraid of it, but apparently they are. So with that, and again, I think that kind of relates to this whole idea of, of control, what we have control over. Um, I will turn this over to my colleague, Jim McIntyre. All right, good morning. And so I get the distinct honor of starting us off. And, and thank you, Mary, because your intro basically dovetails with exactly what I want to talk about. To set context, right, um, you start thinking about change, and especially random change, and that's the Industrial Revolution. And that can be really, really disruptive, right? Like, we don't know what's happening next. It can be very upsetting, especially when accepted patterns of living are altered. And to give us some context on this, I have the example here. This is Samuel Downing. He was the last veteran of Washington's army to die in 1867. He was born in 1764, 
So he's at the age of 103. So think about this for a second. Um, when he was born, how did you get, mo how did most of us get from town A to town B? If you're lucky, <laughs> a horse. Most of us walk, okay? But by the time he dies, even someone of moderate means can purchase a ticket and take a train, which also has a lot of other implications, right? Um, how big is the world when he's born? If, if the way you get there is walking, by the time he dies, you can take a train. So, you know, like if you watch old movies, right, they talk about, well, you should go to New York once in your lifetime. Today, it's like, hey, is Southwest having a special? <laughs> you know, you could, you could go there this weekend if you really want. Um, and so the world shrinks, and that can be disruptive, right? That can alter the way people view things. And that's just one instance, you know. How did you communicate with people who were too distant to talk to? You wrote them a letter. Well, by the time he dies, you can send a telegraph message to them and so forth, okay? Um, some other parts of the background on this. So this industrial revolution that starts the whole transformation in technology, right? And this, there's, in history classes, right, we usually talk about two. There's the first industrial revolution where you get reduce animal power, manpower, and replace it with these machines. And I'll talk about that briefly in a second. Um, and then there's a second wave that comes up in the later 1800s. Okay, but the first part I really wanted to talk about here, um, so this Industrial Revolution begins in England somewhere around the middle of the 1700s. And one of the big things it disrupts, right, one of the first areas it affects is clothing production. And, and I understand, you know, everybody gets really worked up about textiles and textile mills. I see, I see the sinking eyes here, and I see them whenever we talk about them in my history class. Okay, we're not gonna talk about that, so there's a relief. What I wanna talk about, though, is before this, right, one of the first machines, one of the first devices to be mechanized is the loom, okay? So before this, and this is, this is an actual hand-worked hand loom, okay, you, if you knew how to run this fairly complicated-looking device, you were known as a weaver. Um, if you were really good, you were known as a master weaver. And so that comes with some extra baggage. One, uh, you can take on apprentices and journeymen, and so you can get extra income. So you're going to be like upper middle class. Two, you're a respected member of your community. Now we get industrialization. Okay, that's gone. Replaced with this. Uh, we can take anyone off the street and teach them how to run this in uh, about a day. So what does that mean for the master weaver's social standing? Not just his pocketbook, but his social standing. It decreases, yeah, it basically vanishes. Um, and so now people don't just accept this. And again, this plays into the fears, right? So you have not only fear of losing economic standing, but also fear of losing social standing. So what do we do? These are Luddites, as they're called. And, and interestingly, Luddite is still a term we use today. So there, there were these groups in England and Wales and Scotland who went around and literally attacked the machines. They figured if they destroyed the machines, that it would all be okay. Um, eventually, this becomes, it's actually, it seems humorous, but it was actually a very serious thing. And eventually it was repressed by the government. Um, factory owners literally shot these people when they caught them trying to break up their machines. And, and the factory owners had the law on their side, okay? 
Um, and so taking this forward, getting back to Mary's intro, today if you, you know, if you reject cell phones, and some, how many of you have a relative who doesn't want the, that latest technology, latest app? Okay. Our common term now is you're a Luddite. Okay, and it comes from this. Okay, and it's again, it kind of has that connotation, right? Rebel, reje more rejection of authority, and more just kind of staid and old school. Okay, so that kind of gets us started, and now I'll pass it off to my colleague Josh Fulton. All right. Thank you, Professor McIntyre. How do we get? Uh, I do love that in a talk on the history of technology, one professor is trying to show the other professor how to <laughs> use technology. And I, I need it. Uh, I, 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 actually, I actually need it. Uh, thank you, professor. Uh, I, I'll admit, in, in preparing for this, uh, I, I was thinking about a couple of things. Uh, one, uh, I have a... Uh, a laptop that I do a lot of work for online classes on and for other things. And yesterday morning when I opened it up and I'm like, okay, I want to make sure that I get a couple slides together and some, some great stuff to show everyone. Uh, and of course, my Microsoft PowerPoint wouldn't work. Uh, I couldn't open anything. Uh, I couldn't add anything to anything. Uh, and I had a very, very large freakout. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, which I, I would think, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago in terms of the equivalent of education would be if you went to a professor and say, I've stolen your lecture notes. You know, sort of that kind of thing. You know, uh, you must complete these tasks before you can get them back, right? Sort of this, this kind of idea. Now, <clears throat> I, I was eventually uh, able to, to get everything working, uh, but it made me think a little bit uh, about technology and about how we are beholden to it uh, and how it transforms our, our culture. So it got me thinking a bit about educational uh, technology and its history uh, and the fact that all of us uh, are using a PowerPoint as well, I think also tells me something uh, about modern aspects of educational uh, technology and all of this. Uh, so Professor McIntyre was talking a bit about the uh, first industrial uh, sort of revolution, both in England and in the United States. Uh, and I was thinking a little bit about its effects in the later part of the 19th century, in the early 20th century, and some of the different technologies that have come to shape our lives. Now, any discussion of this in a short period of time is going to be very broad. We obviously can't sort of encompass everything. Uh, Anybody know who that guy is? Any guesses? Yeah. Edison. Yeah, Edison, right? Thomas Edison, right? Edison, along with many others of his generation, right, these leading innovators, these leading technological inventors, right, were part of the purveyors uh, of industrialism uh, of the late 19th and in the early 20th century. One of the things that I find so interesting about them, because we seem to feel so disconnected from their time, is that in some ways we're not, right? We have individuals much like that time that we look up to, right? Uh, how many of you have friends in the last five to ten years who have spent time raving about individuals like Elon Musk or others? about how they're the greatest thing that has ever existed, right? Their innovations, their inventions, their abilities, right? This kind of thing. Uh, 
Edison and others were revered for their modernism, right? That idea of keeping up with things. What Professor McIntyre was mentioning about those who engage with technology or disengage with technology. The cool thing in the second industrial revolution was to go along, to engage uh, with that kind of technology. So Edison would certainly be one of the leading figures with this. Professor McIntyre's discussion of weavers got me thinking about connections to the Chicago land area uh, as it relates to technological transformations in the early 20th century. For those who know what those are, right, this is of course uh, the gates to the stockyards, uh, right, uh, in the uh, early 20th century. Right. The, the Industrial Revolution of the late 19th and early 20th century brought with it a technological transformation. Uh, and one of the things that this does is it alters labor in the country and it transforms what we define skill as being. Right? So much like the uh, transformation of weaving technology altered the nature of what it meant for, for weavers and whether or not they would have some measure of social standing, right? this is of course across the board for generally any occupation that you can think of that is going to be mechanized at the end of the 19th century and into the early 20th. Uh, and that idea of what we consider skill as being, I would argue is something we still, of course, discuss, we still debate within our discussions of politics and economy, uh, especially even now, right? Questions like uh, what do we consider things like educational work, work with kids, farm labor, right, these kinds of things. Uh, also, I'll admit, I'd kind of like to try. Uh, the, the bicycle there on the left, I'd fall and hurt something. I know I would, uh, you know, but, but I, I think it would be fun. I think one of the things when it comes to technology is that we need to think of how it transforms how we think, certainly about travel, as Professor McIntyre mentioned, but also how we think about space and also how we think about interpersonal relationships, right? Interpersonal relationships. One of the interesting things about the, the 1870s as Americans were uh, coming together in, in cities a little bit more is that you started to see you know, community activities and entertainment and, and sports. So you'd have folks playing baseball together, but you also had things like competitive walking, right? This was a, was a thing for a while in the, you know, the 1870s. I mean, it was, it was interesting. I mean, they used to chew coca leaves to help them out and, uh, <laughs> and all of that. But, but of course, once bicycles became a little bit more affordable and common, uh, right, this starts to sort of change things and folks aren't as interested in competitive walking anymore. Uh, you could buy all kinds of bikes in the late 19th and the early 20th centuries. Uh, from these new things like Sears catalogs, uh, which offered you an opportunity to order things by mail. Although I must admit the most amusing bicycle that I, I have seen, although I wasn't able to find a picture of it, uh, was in the early 1900s, you could apparently purchase a bicycle that had a gun mount on it, uh, which, you know, oh, oh yeah, you know, you know uh, it, it definitely, you know, gives uh, new meaning to lots of, of things. But 
but in as much as, as bicycles right, can transform space and interpersonal relationships, so can things like automobiles, right? So certainly uh, an individual like Henry Ford, who you see there on the right, is obviously famous for a wide variety of reasons. Uh, certainly his own personal biases and anti-Semitism to be one thing, uh, but perhaps more uh, you know, in terms of his contributions to the automobile industry uh, and many others like him. Uh, the affordability of things like cars, by the time you get to the 19-teens and 20s, transformed what was possible uh, for the average individual, particularly for, for women, and when it comes to the idea of how does one have or can one have uh, some idea of interpersonal relationships, right? concept of dating becomes very different when you have a car, right? This is the, uh, this is the concept. Uh, all right. Now, I'll admit it, uh, I, I grew up in a house where my mother was a computer science professor, so if you're curious as to whether or not someone in their late 30s does something that their mom tells them to do, uh, I am the one. Um, anybody know who this guy is? Anybody know who this guy is? No? I mean, his mustache game is fantastic, obviously. Uh, you know, that would be one thing. Uh, but if you're curious, if you're someone who's really into computing, uh, this is a guy named Henry Hollerith. Uh, this is a guy named Henry Hollerith. Uh, and Henry Hollerith uh, was an individual who helped develop basic computational technology uh, at the end of the 19th century. This had to do with the American census and the ability to do it more quickly, right? The census takes about, you know, they said it's taken every 10 years, but of course with the computational ability that we had in the late 19th century, it would take most of that 10 years to actually compute everything. Uh, and so it is this individual who is successful in developing ways to speed that process up that leads us to things like IBM and all of this, right? Uh, we tend to talk certainly about the effects of computing with companies like IBM during eras of things like the Second World War, and that is absolutely important, right? The ability to develop better, um, you know, sort of technologies for uh, artillery and, and, and fire direction and this kind of thing is very important. Uh, but someone like Henry Hollerith and others help set the standards for a lot of that. Uh, and there are other inventors to help them out. Anyone curious? Anybody know who this individual is? Anybody know who this individual is? Yeah. Uh, of, uh, yeah, this is Hedy Lamarr. Uh, so she was an incredibly famous actress, Hollywood actress in her day, but also was a really, 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 really prominent inventor uh, and invented some of the early technologies that eventually leads us to things like cell phones, which, of course, I think when Professor Fifelis uh, begins our discussion of more modern technologies, right, this is going to play a very, 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 very significant role uh, in terms of how we think about things. Now, in terms of sort of final points uh, with aspects of the early to mid 20th century, it seems that the era of World War II would be a good thing to uh, discuss. Now, one can pick from a bevy of options in terms of technologies that have come to influence life, that have come to influence how things operate. Uh, and perhaps most famously during World War II, right by the end of it, we see the introduction of the uh, atomic era and, and all of this. Uh, but certainly the Higgins boats, uh, I would argue, which you see pictured here, are perhaps one of the most influential innovations during the era of the war uh, that contributes very much to Allied victory, right? So I'm assuming some of us have seen films like Saving Private Ryan or we've, uh, you know, uh, played video games where, where we land and storm the beaches. Any Medal of Honor fans uh, in the crowd, right? We have, you know, 
uh, you know, it's, it's with these kinds of innovations that make those kinds of amphibious operations possible, right? Uh, something like D-Day uh, could not happen necessarily in the way that it happened uh, without something like this. Uh, so, you know, much like t technology can transform the nature of how we think about skill, uh, technology can also transform the nature of how we conduct war. Uh, so there's a lot of different aspects of this. All right, uh, with that, Professor Fee Fleece. All right. To piggyback off of my colleague over here, since he brought up the nuclear age, I think now would be perhaps a great time. I'm sorry that you have also my emails there. Um, <laughs> In misinformation and fear of technology. Have any of you ever seen this video before? Any of your classes? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've seen it. So we can't watch the whole thing, but I'm going to show you parts of it because it is, it's at times frightening and hilarious. Um, let's see. Dum dum, diddle dum dum, diddle dum dum, diddle dum dum. There was a turtle by the name of Bert, and Bert the turtle was very alert. When danger threatened him, he never got hurt. He knew just what to do. He'd duck and cover. Duck and cover. He did what we all must learn to do. You and you and you and you. Sure and remember what Bert the Turtle just did, friends, because every one of us must remember to do the same thing. That's what this film is all about. Duck and cover. This is an official civil defense film produced in cooperation with the Federal Civil Defense Administration and in consultation with the Safety Commission of the National Education Association. Produced by Archer Productions Incorporated. Hey, Bert, come on out and meet all these nice people, please. All right. We really can't blame you. You see, Bert is a very, very careful fellow. When there's danger, this is the way he keeps from being hurt. Sometimes it even saves his life. That's why these children are practicing to duck and cover just as you do in your school. We all know the atomic bomb is very dangerous. Since it may be used against us, we must get ready for it just as we are ready for many other dangers that are around us all the time. Fire is a danger. It can burn whole buildings if someone is careless. But we are ready for fires. We have a fine fire department to put out the fire, and you have fire drills in your school so you know what to do. Automobiles can be dangerous, too. They sometimes cause bad accidents, but we are ready. We have safety rules that car drivers and people who are walking must obey. Now, we must be ready for a new danger, the atomic bomb. First, you have to know what happens when an atomic bomb explodes. You will know when it comes. We hope it never comes, but we must get ready. It looks something like this. There is a bright flash, brighter than the sun, brighter than anything you've ever seen. If you are not ready and did not know what to do, it could hurt you in different ways. It could knock you down hard or throw you against a tree or a wall. It is such a big explosion, it can smash in buildings and knock signboards over and break windows all over town. But 
If you duck and cover like Bert, you will be much safer. You know how bad sunburn can feel. The atomic bomb flash could burn you worse than a terrible sunburn, especially where you're not covered. Now, you and I don't have shells to crawl into like Bert the turtle, so we have to cover up in our own way. First, you duck, and then you cover. And very tightly, you cover the back of your neck and your face. Duck and cover underneath a table or desk or anything else close by. In Betty's school, they are talking about the atomic bomb, too. Betty is asking her teacher, how can we tell when the atomic bomb may explode? And her teacher is explaining that there are two kinds of attack, with warning and without any warning. We think that most of the time we will be warned before the bomb explodes, so there will be time for us to get into our homes, schools, or some other safe place. Our civil defense workers and our men in uniform will do everything they can to warn us before enemy planes can bring a bomb near us. You may be in your schoolyard playing when the signal comes. That signal means to stop whatever you are doing and get to the nearest safe place fast. Always remember, a flash of an atomic bomb can come at any time, no matter where you may be. You might be out playing at home when the warning comes. Then be sure to get into the house fast, where your parents have fixed a safe place for you to go. If you are not close to home when you hear the warning, go to the nearest safe cover. Know where you are to go, or ask an older person to help you. You know the places marked with the S sign? They're safe places to go when you hear the alarm. If there is a warning... This is a rather long video, so I'm going to fast forward. I just, there's some things I want you to see, because they're going to be really helpful for you in the event that an atomic bomb were to be launched against us. Here we go. The newspaper? Yeah. yeah. I had to go to that. And, oh, and the oh, tractor. Oh, sure. Okay. They knew how to duck and cover. They acted right away when the flash came. If they had been at this doorway when the bomb flashed, Paul and Patty would have ducked and covered this way, like this girl. Heavy doorways are a good place to duck and cover. She will be safer, too. Here's Tony going to his Cub Scout meeting. Tony knows the bomb can explode any time of the year, day or night. He is ready for it. Anytime. Duck and cover. Night. a boy, Tony. That flash means act fast. Tony knows that it helps to get to any kind of cover. This wall was close by, so that's where he ducked and covered. Tony knew what to do. Notice how he keeps from moving or from getting up and running? He stays down until he is sure the danger is over. Like the man helping Tony is a civil defense worker. His job is to help protect us when there is danger of the atomic bomb. We must obey the civil defense worker. We must know how to duck and cover in the school bus or in any other bus or streetcar. Duck and cover. Don't wait. Duck away from the windows fast. The glass may break and fly through the air and cut you. Sundays, holidays, vacation time, we must be ready every day, all the time, to do the right thing if the atomic bomb explodes. Duck and cover! <laughs> this family knows what to do, just as your own family should. They know that even a thin cloth helps protect them. Even a newspaper can save you from a bad burn. 
But the most important thing of all is to duck and cover yourself, especially where your clothes do not cover you. No matter where we live, in the city or the country, we must be ready all the time for the atomic bomb. Duck and cover! That's the first thing to do, duck and cover. The next important thing to do after that is to stay covered until the danger is over. Yes, we must all get ready now so we know how to save ourselves if the atomic bomb ever explodes near us. If you do not know just what to do, ask your teacher when this film is over. Discuss what you could do in different places if a bomb explodes. Older people will help us as they always do, but there might not be any grown-ups around when the bomb explodes. Then, you're on your own. I think you get the general gist of, of the video. So how helpful do you find this, uh, this film? Yeah, Nick? Right, right. This is what you're supposed to do. You duck and cover. So the newspaper will help you, even though your hair's already falling off, your skin's melting like the guy from Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, you're, you've been incinerated completely, but, you know, that, that'll really help you to seek cover, seek shelter in a doorway, or, you know, just ask an older person where to go, because he'll be able to tell you where to go for help. <laughs> so obviously, I mean, when you look back on this, we kind of laugh, right? That's why I said it's both hilarious and frightening at the same time. Um, I don't know which one I find it more. I think it's maybe equal, equal parts both. Um, but this is what, what kind of people believed at the time. And people were, were petrified of atomic bombs. They had shelters built in their houses and their backyards stocked with canned goods that could last them for God knows how long. But the, the fear was real. I remember, I'm, I'm not sure if you two do, we still had like in the 80s a few drills, 80s, nuclear. Yeah. They were kind of uh, petering out at that point, but we still had a few of them because the, the Cold War was still, was still going on. The so day after. The day after. The day um, there was also uh, Red Dawn, oh, very yeah. famous film. And all these films were very just War, kind of a... games? Yes. Yeah. So I just wanted to show you that because I thought there was a, a little transition before we jump straight from, you know, World War II talking about Y2K in the year 2000. Um, this was a very real fear <clears throat> that people had for a long time that I think people probably still have, uh, given what's been happening in more, in more in recent, uh, recent years. Where's mine here? There we go. Okay. All right. So... Most of you are probably not going to remember that computer. I do. I love it. Oh, that is awesome. Yeah. It's a really good-looking one. Um, so and I remember my, my aunt had an Apple. It was one of the earliest uh, versions, and I thought it was the coolest thing ever because she could make greeting cards. So, like, your happy birthday card or, like, your whatever, ha happy Valentine's Day card. She made greeting cards for everybody. I thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen in my life. Um, but, you know, there were a lot of people who were petrified of things like this. Um, there actually is a term, computer phobia. Uh, there are people who were afraid that as computers developed, that if as kids played computer games, that they were going to become obese. Um, as they, as their brains were going to be basically fried from doing that, and they wouldn't be able to think for themselves. Um, they would become completely desensitized to, to th as games progressed. You mentioned uh, um, Medal of Honor, Medal of Honor uh, being, being desensitized to violence. Um, that was a real fear that I think we, st we still have to a degree. But I mean, as, that, as the time, time has gone on, I think we've come to realize how useful these things can be in our lives, too. So there's a couple of quotes I have up there, just of, of, and it's, it's kind of similar to what we've all sort of talked about. Uh, basically, the, the fear is the idea of losing power, right? If, if you look at both quotes, or even what Professor McIntyre talked about, or Professor Fulton talked about, there's some, there's some certain common denominators that keep popping up. And it's the idea of a fear of change, of becoming a slave, perhaps, to that, to that um, type of technology, or losing control, not knowing how to handle it. And that's probably the most important one. So most of you probably do not remember this. 
Y2K. Um, so, <laughs> so I remember I was uh, at the time in grad school and I was studying abroad that year and I was doing a lot of flying back and forth. And so the fear was, and that's why I said, you know, the inevitable breakdown of civilization uh, that was supposed to be coming our way January 1st, the year 2000. Um, here are some of the, the titles of some of the um, periodicals and academic journals that are on EBSCO about Y2K. From there, there would be primary sources from that time. Are we prepared for Y2K? Uh, Y2K, the moment of truth. Expect the best and prepare for the worst. Uh, Y2K, the year 2000, apocalypse soon. I think that's my favorite one. Um, let's see, what else? Y2K problem overview. This is literally just like three pages. I only printed three. There were many, many more besides that of primary sources from that time. Does anyone know what Y2K even was? They were, they were afraid it was the end of the world. And, and it, it came from just a really small, well, turned out to be pretty small. Yes, sir, go ahead. Yes, yes. Yes, sir. Oh, absolutely. I think that's been true since the dawn of time. Absolutely. That how things can be manipulated and used for nefarious and evil purposes, for sure. Um, you know, one can make the argument that you know, the atomic bomb was in our hands, but had it been in the hands of the Soviets uh, you know, first, how could that have turned out? Um, but so, okay, so yeah, Y2K was basically, as, as this gentleman mentioned, computer coding at the time was very limited. And I'm not even going to attempt to even act like I know anything about computer coding, because I don't. Mm -hmm. But basically, he said it really well. That essentially when, um, you know, the, the, the computers were programmed for like two numbers, for two digits, for 19. And the, the, the concern was that when it, you got to, to zero, zero for 2000, that basically they would just completely malfunction. And it was bad. And of course, this is my favorite, one of my favorite Prince songs, tonight we're going to party like it's 1999. But this is what people were literally worried about. Um, I had to put the lions and tigers and bears, oh my, in there. But plane crashes, no radios, no stoplights. We're all going to crash into one another. Uh, complete computer wipeouts. Uh, you know, your bank accounts be just automatically draining of money. Um, complete lighting blackouts. We won't see where anything is. Uh, people were really, really afraid of it, and and rightly so. I mean, there was. I mean, it because to a degree, actually, you know, we talk about how like we're looking back on it now. That's almost kind of a joke, right? Uh, it's it's kind of become mocked. But President Clinton actually had a Y2K czar, a dude that was like dedicated to dealing with the Y2K crisis, who had to fly, be in the air flying, I remember, on December 31st, 1999, as it went into January 1st, 2000, so the people would be reassured that the plane was not going to immediately plummet from the sky to the earth. Um, and so I'm, I, I'm kind of, I sound a little facetious, like I'm kind of making, like, you know, making fun of it, but it, it was a real fear. People were, were you know, going crazy, stocking up on water. And I've got a brief video if we've got time to show. I'm not sure if we do. Um, you know, yeah, I'll show the video, a little bit of it here, and then we can keep talking about it. And again, this is long, so we're not going to watch the whole thing, just part, a few parts of it. In focus this evening, the glitch that could short-circuit cyberspace. On New Year's Day 2000, is it possible that we're in for an international disaster because so many of the world's computers will be utterly confused by what date it is? At the close of the 20th century, a tiny computer glitch threatened to disrupt nearly every aspect of modern life. It's called the Y2K, or Year 2000, bug. It's a problem that some fear could cripple the nation. Everyone knows failure of Uncle Sam's computers would be chaos. Glitches in the air traffic control system, 
breakdowns in oversight of nuclear plants and weapons. Government is not a little behind, but way behind. Tremendously behind. The wake-up call is now. Now, this is not one of the summer movies where you can close your eyes during the scary parts. While computer experts had known about the Y2K bug since the 1960s, it wasn't until the 1990s that their fears became increasingly public. I mean, this is the biggest, dumbest, stupidest, most idiotic blunder in the history of technology. See that YY right there? That's the year in two digits. 1998 reads only as 98 to a computer chip. Come the year 2000, many computers will assume 00 means the year 1900, back to the future. Programmers only used two digits for two reasons. One, they didn't have a lot of memory space for their programs. And secondly, they never imagined their software would last as long as it did. We got specifics today on how ill-prepared America's computers are for the year 2000. Today, a Senate panel reported that up to 40% of the country could be hit by power failures on New Year's 2000 because computers get confused. You wouldn't want to be in an airplane, you wouldn't want to be in an elevator, and you wouldn't want to be in a hospital. There's a significant risk, a 40% risk, of a global recession. By 1998, President Bill Clinton moved to quell the fears by creating a Council on Year 2000 Conversion. He put John Koskinen, a high-level government administrator, in charge. The cry went up from the Hill that the administration was not paying enough attention, there was not a coordinated effort, and there needed to be somebody in control. I only halfway facetiously said the president gave me an office, an assistant, and said, don't let the world stop. We knew finance and telecommunication systems were going to be the ones most at risk. But also, the FAA had a legitimate problem. IBM sent them a letter that said, these systems won't work when the transition comes, and there's no way to fix them. The Social Security had 50 million lines of code. It's a mind-boggling uh, number to think about, and that was replicated. Embedded computer chips in everything, from VCRs to power plants, were also thought to be vulnerable. The life of this baby depends on computer chips. They are embedded in the machines that monitor his heart rate. And the question is, will they work on January 1st, 2000? On the nightly news, reporters scrambled to translate the scale of the problem into... Go ahead, move on ahead here a little bit, I'm sorry. But yeah, the babies are gonna die. The planes are gonna fall out of the sky, literally. It'll be anarchy. <laughs> okay, here's some of the reaction in the country. Nike had already been invaded by another kind of bug. The bug in our cultural software, our beliefs about the millennium, were much more serious than the technical problem. This is usually a slow time for Hinkley Springs, but not this year. Their retail business doubled and delivery to homes and offices up 30%. The risk by the last six months of 99 was there'd be a run on the bank, there'd be a run on gas, there'd be a run on food. That was as big a concern for us as anything. Surf through the internet these days and you keep coming across a strange new word, Toyota Waukee. The word stands for the end of the world as we know it. That's a sound that gets your attention real quick. By the fall of 1999, news stories reported a spike in gun sales. 
scammers preying on a confused public. He said, yeah, I'm calling from Bank Boston, and I need to get decals mailed to you so you can put them on your credit card or they won't work after Y2K. And survivalists taking extreme measures in anticipation of the millennium. Gary North has his own natural gas well. He says it's his ticket for survival. That cheers me up. And for thousands of Americans, the millennium evoked fears of a coming apocalypse. I believe that Y2K may be God's instrument to shake this nation, humble this nation, awaken this nation, and from this nation, start revival that spreads the face of the earth before the rapture of the church. American society has a very deep well of belief in the imminent end of the world. And the three zeros triggered all of that. Everybody saw in the Y2K tea leaves whatever it is they wanted to see. The arrival of Y2K did not bring the much-anticipated and feared computer meltdown. It appears to have been more of a prankster than a real problem. Things couldn't be going more smoothly. So smoothly, some are even asking if all that preparing was necessary. Certainly the flu bug has affected us much more than the Y2K bug, which I think is probably non-existent. You never get credit for the disasters you avert, especially if you're a programmer and nobody understands what you're doing to begin with. We have sort of a lack of confidence that uh, things can get done. People did not grasp the magnitude of the effort. The easier thing to keep in your mind was all that noise about it and nothing happened. It must have just been a hoax. The Senate's final report on Y2K found that government and industry did successfully avert a crisis at an estimated cost of $100 billion. But was the response excessive? One research group estimated that government and industry overspent by nearly 30%. My answer to people who said, well, they wasted a lot of money was the number of things that happened that went wrong, that fortunately were around the edges, demonstrated that if you didn't fix the systems, it wouldn't work automatically. There were some minor glitches after Y2K, but it turned out not everything needed to be fixed, including most embedded chips. Looking back on Y2K today, Koskinen sees enduring value in the systems put into place to prepare for the worst-case scenario. When 9-11 hit on that Tuesday, financial markets were able to open the following Monday because in 1998 and 99, they had developed tests and scripts for testing all the interconnections and all the trade data between all of the major players. Without that ability to test systems and make sure that the markets and every transaction could open and close with all of the counterparties, it would have been weeks before the financial markets would have been able to comfortably open. We have little Y2Ks happening all the time. Technologies are always created for one reason, but end up being used for an application that the creator could never imagine. World News uh, headline there, the, the day the earth will stand still. Um, so yeah, so was this fake news? Probably today it would be, it would be called fake news, but as you saw in the video, um, between the Clinton administration and, and private businesses, they spent about $100 billion. Other countries that were also kind of more technologically forward thinking, like the US, were doing the same. There were a few minor incidences, as was mentioned. Uh, one was that there was a, a malfunction at a nuclear power plant in Tennessee. 
that people didn't really, you didn't really hear too much about that luckily was, it did not turn into something larger, but it could have been something a lot larger. So again, as, as the, um, the uh, gentleman said, you, you tend to get a lot of credit, uh, you don't get a lot of credit when things go well when you avert a disaster, but you tend to get a lot of blame when, when they do go uh, poorly. So this was the headline of the BBC News on the January 1st, 2000, the bug fails to bite. And people were watching, because you know, Australia, the, the time changed there first, then Tokyo, and they were looking to see kind of what was happening throughout uh, um, Asia, going into Russia, how, how is this all gonna turn out? And by the time it got to New York, it was really anticlimactic, like, yeah, we're good. Nothing, nothing's gonna happen here, we're okay. So, with that in mind, I thought I'd bring up something else that happened the same, the same year, I was gonna say same semester, because my life always uh, evolves in semesters. Um, the 2000 presidential election, and how that, what, that, what technology has to do with voting. Um, those of you who might recall, um, or you were born in 2000 or shortly thereafter, um, that this was a race between uh, Vice President Al Gore at the time and Texas Governor George W. Bush. And the election was a very tight one and came down to the state of Florida. I actually have, I was studying abroad that semester. I was in Northern Ireland and I, I got myself a, I had a ballot mailed to me that came late, of course, so I ended up having to go to the U.S. consulate and voting with one of their ballots. But I do have a ballot from that election. And I'm gonna see if you could, I'm not sure if you can kind of see this, but let's see if I can open this here. These little tabs that are kind of like, I have to punch through in order to basically be able to pick the candidates that, that I was looking to pick. Put this back in here. What you see that, see what the gentleman's doing up there, same kind of thing. So you had a, an extremely tight race and it came down to literally several hundred votes um, in the state of Florida. Originally the state was declared for, for Gore, uh, then it was declared for Bush, and then Gore initially conceded, then he withdrew his concession, and this went on for months, well about a month, basically, before they could figure out what was going on. And part of the concern was of ballots like that, that had not been, because the machines were not functioning properly, the counting machines, you had what were called hanging chads. As you punched through, there's a little piece of paper that was kind of hanging on the edge of it, and that became known as a hanging chad. This is probably one of the most iconic photographs uh, from that time. Um, so because of that, because of the ballot design problems, it led to this desire that maybe we should move over to having computerized voting machines. Maybe that's the solution, and we should all be voting that way, electronically. Um, and I, I, I'm bringing in a little current with this next one because of what just happened with the Iowa caucus. It just goes to show you, with tech, it's, it's back and forth, right? Um, because th this is the big deal. Uh, the Democratic Party was using, were using an app to try to um, uh, basically funnel the votes uh, from what was going on on the ground up through to, to centralize it so they would know who was voting which way faster. And the app was a disaster. It didn't work well, it was malfunctioning, and so it went on for several, but two days before we could actually get a pretty decent count. And there's still actually talk about uh, recounting several uh, precincts in Iowa because of it. So now the talk is, do we go back to paper ballots? Maybe that's the key. Because at least with paper, you don't have to worry about you know, Russian hacking into, into voting machines, because there were attempts made in 2016. You don't have to worry about uh, things like you know, um, apps that don't work. Maybe the solution is to go back to the, the least technology, the, the smallest amount of technology. So from there, I thought we could kind of uh, parlay this into a conversation with all of you. How many of you have all these with you pretty much every day? Yeah, I didn't think it was going to be everybody. But of course, what's the thing that you all carry? Of course. You all have this, right? And I think, I thought it'd be interesting as, you know, as, as faculty, people who are in the teaching profession, and those of you may, who may have family members in the teaching profession, or you may yourself want to go into the teaching profession, you know, there are a lot of pros and cons of using, of using phones um, in the classroom. Why do you think that we 
tend to, in many cases, avoid having phones in the classroom. What do you think are the reasonings behind that? Distractions, what else? Cheating, yes, what else? Did you say free thinking? Free thinking meaning? Oh, so using the phone to think for you as opposed to thinking for yourself? Or you mean the opposite? Okay, okay, thank you. Anybody else? No other pros or cons? Yes, ma'am. Safety? Can you elaborate on that, please? Right. If so you have access to your phone in case of, God forbid, a school shooting or something of that nature, um, which unfortunately has, has happened. So there are lots of pros and cons. Oh, yes, sir. Distractions. Distractions, definitely. That's probably the biggest one. I always tell my students that I'm kind of like Dory from Finding Nemo. I get really easily distracted. So if I see a cell phone out, my mind literally goes whoop, right, right to that person. I'm thinking, well, what are they looking at? And was that interesting? Does that mean I'm boring? What's going on? And then I totally go off on this like horrible train of thought and it, it completely confuses me and distracts me. So that's why I just ask, just for the most part, to kind of have a cell-free zone in the class. But there are times that I, I use it in the classroom as well and it's been rather helpful many times. So th there, there's some literature out there to suggest that actually using, a, using phones in the classroom are quite helpful. I think one of our concerns is that people don't know, people don't write as well then, because they're used to always like kind of texting writing, um, which I have to admit, I do oftentimes get, get uh, email messages that resemble texts like, hey, um, uh, I want to let you know, you, the letter U, uh, know what's going on, to the number two instead of, you know, T-O. Um, but a lot of the literature also seems to suggest that there's a lot of, of good use for it. Um, that would give people access to things like, particularly if you're, if you're in an area that's, that's uh, more poverty stricken, if every kid were to have a cell phone, that could be used as a calculator, that could be used as a book for a myriad of different things that would basically replace so many other things. So there's good and there's bad with it. But I think, it, and, and I wanted to ask you, how many of you guys, how many of you, you, you use it for banking, your cell phone? What other uses do you use your phone for every day? Homework? Okay, to turn it in. Yes, ma'am. Your alarm in the morning. Me too. Mm -hmm. What else? Paying your bills. Camera, GPS. Staying in contact with family through just probably not just even texting, but through apps and you know things where you could see one another. Right, FaceTime. Yes, sir. Sometimes work. So you use your own phone at work sometimes. Okay, thank you. Yes, ma'am. The back. Are you just stretching? Yes, sir. Buying stocks. Yeah, there's a lot you could do with this phone nowadays, right? Um, and I do remember I, I had the original. This I, on the left, I have, or on the right, is the uh, the original one. Um, and I remember everyone saying at the time, like when we started paying bills online and things like, "Oh my God, that's so dangerous. Oh, that's going to be terrible. How are we going to? You know, people are going to be able to hack into it." But when you think about it, on your own, if you write a check, your account number and your routing number are both on, on the check that you write. So is it really that much different? Um, Perhaps yes, perhaps no. But the fear is still there, though, right? How, and, and I think it was Professor McIntyre asked how many people still have somebody who, you know, they write their own checks, they refuse to use any kind of electronic banking, or they keep their money in their mattress because they're afraid you know, the bank's going to lose it, that kind of thing. Um, it's still there. What are you saying about me, Mary? What, pardon me? <laughs> <laughs> so I thought we could open up and, 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 and have a talk with you guys about this. What are, other, what are aspects of technology that worry you, that make you nervous? Would you be open to things like voting online? Would you be open to, uh, to using your, your phones in other ways that, that you know, perhaps would eliminate? Do you want to use the microphone there? Are there any aspects of, of technology that, that worry any of you? Yes, sir. 
Wait, I have the microphone. Oh, sorry. Uh, people hacking into your phone or your computers. Um, I would have to say that the worries for me have already happened. It's like people do hack into people's bank accounts. They do hack into all of these things, you know? So it's like, I'm just going to say you just need to change with the times. And then if you have a problem with changing with the times, I would still put my money under my mattress or do things a certain way, you know? Because actually my husband does that and I'm just like, you're so weird. But he's like, I'm not giving my money to a bank. I mean, of course we have a joint account where it's like, okay, you have to do this. But I would just have to say the things that worry me have already happened and it's happening. So it's just like, you got to get with the times because even though like they're doing everything electronically and it does, it is scary because, you know, you work and I've seen and I've known people that I've went to high school with that I've seen on the news. And I'm like, dang, you got all that money. And it's like, how do you do that? You know, but I, I'm just just to sum it up. I would have to say those things that scare me have already happened before. And it's just to the point where I feel like everything is just coming electronic because my husband works for the railroad and he can't he don't know when to go to work if they don't call. They they literally have to call his phone for him to know when to be on duty. So we got to change with the times and then the things that we can't control, do it in the things that we can't. Don't worry about it. Um, so there are a lot of like bad things that happen with technology, but there are also a lot of good things that happen with it. Like my sister's credit card got scanned and they like made a purchase in New York or something like that just to see if it would work and like literally within the next like 10 minutes my sister was getting a call saying exactly what was happening with her credit card so like without technology like people wouldn't know what was going on in their lives really multiple data breaches where you know where people's information was released or that's happened also multiple times where and I think the banks for the most part have gotten really good at responding very very quickly like they will call you within two minutes of something happening so I think that at least from that perspective things have gotten a little bit safer yes sir I think <clears throat> I think another positive about the cell phone and the internet is also the news like we could uh, we don't have really trust one source we could figure out the truth for ourselves especially it could also ca start like uh, activist groups like you see in Hong Kong they're using the the with the protests are using the cell phone a lot in 2011 the Arab Spring happened because of Twitter and Facebook uh, movement stars so I think that history can be impacted by the internet a lot and uh, that's a great point yeah. yeah the green revolution in Iran same thing they were that's how they were using they were using apps to get the information out yeah I would to to build on on that I would I would say absolutely right the idea of social medias uh, and that kind of, of personal individual technology as a communicative tool uh, to force institutional change right is a, you know is a wonderful thing right but I think all of us have probably within our own lives experienced the the negativity uh, as well that can come with those kinds of things. I mean, how many of you have known friends or family members that have been victims of cyberbullying uh, or some kind of 
of harassment, uh, you know, in in some way, shape, or form. I mean, I, you know, have a, a, a Twitter account and other social media accounts and sort of this kind of thing, but for the most part, uh, I am who I am and I, I look like I look and I, I, I don't experience the level of, of harassment that other individuals sadly do, right? Of, uh, you know, the cost of, 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 of living a social life on the internet, right, uh, can be particularly costly for certain individuals. Uh, so, yeah, there's absolutely the ability to affect positive change, uh, you know, that, that is something there. Uh, but there is also the ability to cause real destruction uh, and dissension, you know, bringing it back to uh, fake news, as Professor Fifelis uh, put it uh, earlier. You know, the idea of, of being able to figure the truth out for yourself, certainly. Uh, but uh, it has also given us an opportunity for things to go viral that have no basis in actual truth, uh, which is also uh, um, uh, problematic. Right. And I would say to build on, on both of those points, that it, it, I think a lot of it comes back to us, right? How do we conceive of the technology we have? Do we look at it as our servant or our master? You know, it can definitely enhance your menu of choices and it can definitely make our lives a lot easier, banking, paying bills, and so forth. But if we feel we have to update Twitter daily, multiple times, th then you know I think it's a valid question to ask to say, okay, I am I, is this technology something useful to me or do I feel I must serve it? Personally, I look forward to the takeover of our robot master. No. Um, <laughs> but, you know, again, it, just, it does come back to that idea. And, and I think it all comes back to the one book, one college, because, you know, as I was preparing for this, I kept thinking about those were sort of big questions because, um, especially with duck and cover, you know, one thing you have to keep in mind is the, the use of the atomic bombs made, turned science fiction authors from crackpots to visionaries because they'd been talking about atomic energy for 50 years and people all thought, oh, they're crazy, they're, they're nuts. And then, oh, oh, hold it. And they'd actually been having those sort of ethical discussions of what do you do with this technology? And having that, raising that question of, is it a positive or a negative? Is it our servant or our master? And you know, even a lot of the other things that were going on, um, and, and you had this generation of really amazing authors. Isaac Asimov was certainly one, but Ray Bradbury was also part of that group, and Arthur C. Clarke. And, and many people don't know, Asimov was actually a biochemist as well. So his writing was based on hard science a lot of times, and kind of thinking ahead, like, what are the implications? And now here we are today talking about what are the implications of the things that they were dreaming about. 70 years ago. Um, one of the cons of technology is kind of violating privacy issues. It takes too much personal information at all times, like via microphone, via camera, and it starts to kind of consume you because it starts targeting you with ads, and it's kind of a bombardment. So that's one of the cons. Mm -hmm. that's go, go for it. I wanted to actually share a positive story um, uh, about because I, I do I, I agree with your fear too. That's one of the things I worry about as well. Um, but I was I was on sabbatical this last fall and I was working at an organization in the area called Plows Council on Aging and they serve the elderly community. And I was helping a gentleman <clears throat> fill out an application. I can't remember what it was for exactly, but it required his 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 bank documents. He was about 89 or 90 years old, 
And I said, you know, well, we're gonna need to have your, your bank statements in order to be able to kind of proceed. And I thought, well, this is gonna be another like two weeks before. He's like, hold on, pulls out his iPhone. He's like, let me see, I'll pull him up on, on PDF and I'll just email him to you. This guy was 90 years old. Like, he was better with the technology than I was. Emailed, and I, I, I was, I, that made my day. I cannot tell you how, that I was so excited that this man who was 90 years old knew how to use this better than I did. He's like, what's your email address, Mary? I'll send it to you right now. And he just, he got his bank statements together and, and sent them to me within minutes. So, I mean, obviously there are also positive ways, but it's, I think, goes, going back to what the lady said over there, that, you know, you kind of have to roll with the times, and some people do. And that gentleman is one who clearly has uh, been able to roll with the times. Just a quick comment on It's possible that some people might be hesitant to embrace new technology because uh, as technological advances happen, uh, people see their jobs going away, right? People see, you know, you know, I've been trained for 20 years to, to, to create the phonograph or the sewing machines or whatever, and now I'm not needed any longer, right? And so I think uh, if there's, if, if I, I suppose if there was some way to connect those people, to retrain them, right, to get them, get them on, you know, on the newer path. So, so the other side, of course, is that uh, all this new technology creates more opportunities for people. Um, I can't. I, I can't even tell you how much, how many, how many jobs were probably created for Y2K, right? I mean, so that's True. the plus yeah. side. Um, but what do you do with the individuals that were trained for an obsolete thing now? And I think maybe that's why we might see some pushback of why people might be afraid of technology. It, it to to respond to that, uh, Professor Jesus. I mean, I in in looking to history, of course, that is very common. Right. Uh, I was commenting earlier on the second half of the, the 19th century, and Professor McIntyre was commenting on the, the first part of it. And you think about the census, and the census tells us, you know, some of the first censuses tell us that, you know, something like over 90% of Americans worked in, in farming, right? And by about 1920, the majority of Americans live in cities and, and, and this kind of thing, right? How they have to process life, uh, you know, was utterly shocking to them, right? Because if you study labor history, right, they tell you that it's how folks think about control over their own lives that is the most important thing when it comes to aspects of, of labor, right? What we use our time to do. Uh, and for those who lived and worked in small, disconnected farming communities in, you know, America in the, the mid-19th century. I was going to say rural America, but most all of America was rural America in the mid-19th century. Uh, and so, you know, what, their time was their own, you know, for the most part, right? They set the pace of work, uh, you know, sort of for the most part. For most of us, you know, how we think about even a job that we're going to have for a while, then we might adapt to a new job with new technology. To, to many of us, this is a part of the process, right? This is how jobs work. You know, how many of us here have had to clock in or clock out or time in or time out for a job before, right? In some way, shape, or form, right? What if you've never had to do that? Right? How does that process work? How can you conceptualize that? And you do see many movements with those who struggle with it. In the 1870s, farmers uh, created something called the Grange, uh, which was this 
self-help movement for farming communities to be able to push back against what they thought were destructive forces. Now, not Luddite style, uh, <laughs> but, but still push back against it. Uh, in the 1890s, you had a group of individuals known as the populists uh, who were as well perhaps even further angered uh, in the transformation of space in America, perhaps the most famous individual being William Jennings Bryan, and uh, to paraphrase the quote, was it, was it burn down or tear down our cities and leave us our farms? Uh, you know, this idea that the, the city itself, you know, is a embodiment of this new kind of technological transformation and that it is destructive to the nature of, of real life. Yeah. So. Yeah. You want to say something, Jim? Um, and, and I think, like, I just lost it, but I'm trying to get it back. Um, when you're reticent to use technology, I think again it goes back to that level of choice, you know. And, and there it is. The the idea too, if you look closely at the past, um, even with the weavers, right? It's not that everyone who is skilled at a trade disappears in 1820. The number of people, and and again, it, you know, you ask a, a, a fundamental question. Um, in losing the in the in drastically reducing the number of blacksmiths you have, does that necessarily mean? That, that you know those people were unimportant or you know you can still get this handmade stuff you can still get many things made by hand today you just have to be willing to pay an extra cost for it you know so it maybe by the same token where some of these some of these things are somewhat devalued by the same token you have the other side of the coin where it it makes having those things it makes having a wardrobe having iron fittings, whatever, accessible to a much larger part of your population than would have been able to afford it previously. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's always, there's always a trade-off. So uh, to echo to uh, what my uh, colleagues are saying too, my class that's here today is History 202, American History 2, and we watched uh, the documentary film American Factory that just won an Oscar for Best Documentary because um, it relates to both what Josh and Jim were talking about. Um, the end of the film, and for those of you who don't know the story, it's about an American factory in Dayton, Ohio that GM owned. It closed in 2009 and how a Chinese company called Fuyao reopened it um, in 2011 or 12 and began employing the people there to make glass for windshields and for cars. And you know, if you're working at GM, you were making maybe $28, $29 an hour, and you start off at Fuyao making about $12.30 an hour. And by the end of the film, um, what we're seeing is that you know the, the gentleman who owns the uh, corporation is walking through the factory, and he's saying, and they're showing these giant, these ginormous, huge machines, these huge, enormous machines with arms that are essentially doing the work of the workers. And he's saying, okay, over here, about four workers are going to be uh, will be let go by about August, and in this area over here, about two more workers are going to be let go by about about the summer. So they're clearly being replaced by uh, by 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 machinery. And I think it's one of the things. If you're following the the, the uh, current uh, political process, Andrew Yang, who was running for president, who dropped out, was talking about that very thing: the idea that how do we how do we as a society um, continue with this? How do you keep, if there are no jobs available, how can people make a wage? How can they live? How can they sustain themselves um, with the, the reduction of jobs that are available? So, it, oh, Go ahead. I, well, I was just going to push you a little bit and uh, maybe extend beyond your areas of ex expertise, but how much of our current political divide from the right or the left, so the rise of oh, Trump or even the rise of Bernie Sanders, can be connected back to some of this political uh, or uh, economic transformation due to technology, right? So if you go back 50 years ago in the 60s, you have a booming economy where most people are working in jobs making things, 
and now those jobs are gone and people are scrambling to try to figure out what it looks like for us in the future and a, a range of things, right? For sure, so. for sure, yeah. I, I can certainly speak to that both in a modern sense as well as in a sort of historical sense, right? We have, particularly in, in higher education, you know, since the days of Sputnik, uh, tended to say, you know, we must always prioritize STEM and technological innovation. Right. Uh, and there's much truth to that. There's much uh, that is good to that. Uh, right. You know, scientific exploration and discovery is fundamentally, you know, this is a good thing. Uh, but on the other side to that, right, is the, hum the human impact of that, right? This question of do we properly appreciate, particularly do innovators, do entrepreneurs, do others properly appreciate the on-the-ground actual effect that something is going to have, right? So I put up the photo of Edison, right? Uh, and the example that I tend to often give in class is, you know, the day after, uh, you know, Edison's light bulb is announced in the newspaper, is the professional candle maker going to look at the news story and go, that's awesome. No, uh, he's not. Uh, you know, uh, is is he going to go down to his political party and say, you know, local political party and say, what are we going to do about this? Or is he going to go down to his union and say, what are we going to do about this? Right. Uh, and so, you know, part of this is, you know, uh, obviously the, the, the bifurcation and the um, the anxiety and difficulty that exists within the modern political system, I would argue, is very much a reflection of how folks are coming to grips with this and can we create institutions, particularly higher ed education institutions, that can help individuals be more adaptable uh, for these things as they change. This is part of the reason why, at least on one side, right, you have discussion of free college, college debt going away, what does that look like in order to provide opportunities for individuals to continue to be flexible. But there's many views on that. Uh, but I would say sort of on one side, there is not often, typically, when we introduce a new technology, a clear and prepared understanding for the effects on individuals and on families that those kinds of technologies will ha will have because in the moment they can be darn destructive uh, to how individuals contemplate their livelihoods. All right, time, one more comment. I just wanted to say before we left, like just he has me thinking and I think that it's very, very, very destructive. One of the things about technology I would just have to say as far as like a con for me, like I have to tell my husband and even now, like I feel really bad that I got my son an iPad for Christmas because I hate it. And it's like, it's very destructive when we talk about family and just like intimacy and things like that because everybody's so much on their phones. So not only does it take away the, the personal connection with one another, even if it's just not our family, even a colleague or a classmate, it's like, oh, hold on real quick, let me check this text. I also feel like it's making us lazy. And another thing that I hate, I'm gonna say this about technology, the fact that they're taking the people out the toll booths and then you put a $5 bill in there and it won't give you your change back, I have a problem with that. <laughs> I had the iPass yeah. thing on my, my original one, I removed it, the easy pass. Well, yeah, and if you greet, do you greet your spouse the first thing in the morning or do you look at your phone first? Which one do you do first? <laughs> okay, that's probably a good stopping, but how about a round of applause for our faculty members? Thank you. Thank you.